Hey everyone, this is Chad Harms, the pastor of Creekside Bible Church. Thanks for taking some time to listen to our latest sermon. This sermon is part of a series called Trumpets and Seals, where we are preaching on Revelation chapters 4 through 11. One of the convictions that has led me to do this series at our church is that the book of Revelation is often a book that people are interested in, but fail to be impacted by. My hope is that this series will change that, at least for some people. With that in mind, I want to invite you to visit the webpage that corresponds with this series. It is wilsonville.church trumpets. On that page, you can watch the sermon videos, but more importantly, there is a respond button that makes it easy for you to reach out to us about the series. If a sermon in this series is impactful to you, I'd love you to reach out. Or maybe you have questions about one of the passages we preach on. Don't hesitate to click on that link and send your question to us. Revelation is a difficult book to understand, even for me, but I'll try my best to answer you. There's one more reason that I want you to visit wilsonville.church trumpets. I'm hoping to put a resource there that offers more insight into the details of the book of Revelation. Like I said, my focus in this series is to show people how God can impact their lives through the book, but I know there's a lot of stuff that interests people, and I want to provide something around that. That resource will be on wilsonville.church trumpets, so make sure to visit the site. Who knows? It might already be up when you hear this. Again, thank you for taking time to listen to this sermon. I hope it will be impactful. In fact, I hope that it will help you to learn and live more fully for the glory of God. Today I want to start by just saying the world, and we all know this, but it's full of really bad stuff, right? And uh, it can be difficult to live on earth, and we like to ignore it. We like to pretend that things are, you know, mostly okay around us, but but it is a there's a lot of really bad and frankly really evil things. And I'm not talking about. I want to make clear I'm not talking about the things that we actually spend our time focusing on and complaining about. I'm not talking about uh, rising gas prices. Um, I, I mean there 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 are those. It went down a little last week, but that's not what I'm referring to. I'm actually, you know, not to you laugh, and now I'm going to drop this in here, but. Um, I'm talking more about like the fact that there are 49.6 million people estimated that are uh, in slavery around our world today. You know, like the really big and bad things that, uh, you know, we don't like to focus on. We complain about inflation, but we we'd much rather just forget that these things exist. And a lot of this, you know, is, is centered around uh, death. And uh, I want to give you some statistics to begin um, but first, let me just say that as I say these, as I share these statistics with you, uh, I do think they're important for, for uh, us thinking about the passage of Scripture that we're going to look at. I think that it's important that we just remember how, um, how much death there is and how bad the world can be to people. And so uh, approximately 20,000 people a year die from earthquakes. That's like, that, that's crazy to me. Um, uh, 7,163,363, or uh, around there, um, uh, die from hunger, or have died from hunger this year, uh, and we're not even to the end of the year. 4,400,000 people die from violent acts each year, and the sad reality is, and this isn't the point of the sermon, but, but, um, but just, we all know this, we don't really pay attention until it, it gets kind of close to us, until it affects us in some ways. Like, for example, almost 100,000 people a year die from cold. And, and uh, in the United States, that's in the United States alone, and about 1.7 million people worldwide. 
But like, I don't ever think about that unless, you know, like we have an ice storm for a week and we're without power. And then all of a sudden it's like, dang, people are probably cold outside. But we just kind of don't think about those things. And here's one we've thought more about, and I'm sorry for you germaphobes, you people who are paranoid anyway, I hate even doing this to some of you, but about 17 million people a year die from infectious diseases. Um, that's the one we've thought a lot about in the last few years, but, um, but that's year over year, uh, about 17 million people. And so we know, even though we don't pay attention to it, that natural disasters, hunger, weather, violence, it kills people. And it does beg this question, like, does God know about it, and does God care about it? Now, the question that is immediately going to come in your mind, and one that if, if you just thought for long enough as I said that, as I posed those two questions, there would be another one. And, and the question is like the, the number one theological question, like if God is all-knowing and all-powerful and all-loving, how does he allow for bad things to happen? I mean, this question comes up all the time. And I want to say I've answered that in sermons, I am not, that is not the point of this passage. I'm not going to provide an answer for that at all today. But if I get to the end and you're still here two minutes into my sermon or whatever, and all you're thinking about is like, why would God allow that? There are response cards in the little tens in front of you. And, and if you fill one of those out and drop it in the offering basket at the end, it says, hey, why does God allow bad things to happen? I'd love to talk to you about it and, and um, you know, share my thoughts and opinions and, and hopefully a little bit of what the Bible says. But that's not, that's not the point here today. Uh, the question of our text is not you know, why God allows for these things to happen, but rather it's more along the lines of when they do happen, can we trust that God is still in control, that God still sits on his throne, that God is all-powerful, that he does know about these things, but he still, despite knowing about them and being all-loving and, uh, and all-knowing, he's still sovereign. He is in control. He has ultimate power and authority over all that happens. And in that, in that, it's going, I think, in a, in a weird, very apocalyptic, kind of crazy way, fulfill the purpose of this book that if you've been with us the last couple weeks, you've already heard me say it several times, but I'm going to keep saying it until I sound like a broken record. But the purpose of the book is to encourage Christians to remain faithful who are dealing with external pressures and internal rejections of truth. And in this passage, which really talks about disaster on the world, I think we will find as we move through it that that same point exists. It's an encouragement to remain faithful even if there's external pressure and internal rejections of truth. It's a call and encouragement for us to live for Jesus even when it is really hard. And it does that once more by reminding us that despite all the bad things in the world, all of that death, all of those statistics, despite all of that, yes, God is still in control. He's absolutely sovereign. And he's even limiting the calamities that fall upon us. And furthermore, he will bring justice upon those who oppose him and persecute his people. Now, uh, as we read Revelation 6 today, uh, I had been lulled into a false sense of security preaching on Revelation 4 and 5. Uh, because like, this is fun. We just talk about worship all day long. And, and then you get to Revelation 6 and... 
and it, it gets crazy in a hurry. I mean, it's crazy. And then you're just like, I'm going to never know what to say on Sunday. And so I will remind you once more that, that as we come to this, that the book of Revelation is a, is a piece of apocalyptic literature. It's apocalyptic literature, and there, there are some key characteristics. I read a couple of them to you last week, and I read five of them the week before. I'm gonna, again, I want to read all five of these to you because it's so important to remember the type of literature, the type of writing that we are looking at here. And so apocalyptic literature and apocalypse, whether the biblical one called Revelation or those outside of it, they have visions and symbols. That's two of the characteristics. And that's what Revelation is primarily consisting of. That's what it is. It's a giant vision with lots of symbols. But it's also, and I think this is important, and I'm not even going to allude to it later. I'm going to trust that you're pretty smart and, and you can think like, oh, it's being written in this way, you know, and, and maybe I don't need to see everything is quite so literal because the type of genre, but it's dualistic as in good versus evil. It's really pessimistic in nature, and it's deterministic. Stuff is about to go down. And so you square the type of literature. Think about the Bible as a whole. Like, lots of talk about things that even happen at the end. It's optimistic in Scripture. But in this apocalypse, it's going to sound really pessimistic. And so there are some crazy, crazy things. And by the way, this is one of the most famous vision symbols in the book. Uh, it's the four horsemen, which make their way into lots of scary kinds of movies. And here's what we read in Revelation 6, 1 through 5. I watched as the lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a loud voice like thunder, come. I looked and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. When the lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. When the lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in its hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures say, two pounds of wheat for a day's wages and a six pounds of barley for a day's wages and do not damage the oil and wine. When the lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the four living creatures or the fourth living creatures say, come. I looked and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword and famine and plague and by the wild beasts of the earth. Now, you're encouraged to go live for Jesus even when it's hard, right? Like, what in the world is, is happening here? What in the world is happening here? Now, the first thing, just one more time, one more time. What's the point of the book of Revelation? It is to call us to remain faithful even when it's hard. But as I say that, uh, it's like, how does this connect? And first, I'm going to do what I think you'd probably want me to do, and I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go right through the four horses, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you what each one stands for, at least in a broad sense, what it stands for. And so the white horse is the uh, most debated, and you know it's going to be a difficult passage to preach on when the answer to one single question, based on two different people, uh, two different groups, in fact, godly, smart 
groups, and one says, the answer to that question, Chad, they don't say it to me, but in their books and writings, the answer to that question is Jesus, and then you read about the other smart and godly people's opinion on this, and they say it's Satan. Oh, so it's Jesus or Satan we're talking about here. Like, what am I supposed to do with that? And the white horse, if you say, what is the white horse? What does that represent? You will have smart, godly, God-fearing, God-loving people saying Jesus, and you will have people on the other side that are smart, God-loving, God-fearing people say it stands, it's Satan. It stands for Satan. That's what it's representing here. So what, what, do, we, what do we do with this? Like, how do we make anything of this well overall we have a it says i mean it's pretty clear actually it's one of the more clear statements it, it, it some way stands for conquest right it has a conquer on it that's out for conquest and so we can easily see this we know we know that this horse and the rider overall the broad idea is that conquest is in mind this would be violence i think coming from the outside forces I think, and man, now don't start saying I said it's talking about Russia. That's not what I mean. But what Russia has done to Ukraine is an example of what is in mind when we look at the white horse and its rider. It's a nation or a group conquering another nation or group or people. Uh, now, there are specifics, guesses about this, right? And, and what does this mean in history? I mean, who it is, Satan or Jesus or something in between, some kind of angels. But, but like, when and what specifically is it referring to? What conquest? There are lots of different pieces. And, and this breaks down. This is where, you know, I've been building this up. But this is where understanding the different viewpoints, historicist, preterist, futurist, idealist, really becomes important. For example, um, you're going to see that preterists, they're going to see this as, as talking about this group called the Parthians uh, coming in and, and conquering Rome. That's what they're going to think about when they think about this. Uh, a, 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 a historicist is going to pick a time in kind of the history of, of the church, and, uh, and they're going to say, well, I think it refers to this one. Like, this is what it's talking about here an idealist as, as you could have guessed is is going to say it doesn't really matter there's no specific period of conquest that it's referring to it's just talking about conquest here like that's the that's the point there's no reason to even guess or talk about it because nobody is in mind and no period is in time this is just simply about the lesson that we are to take from it and then futurists will say this is about a time right before when Jesus returns now you need, at some point, you should decide what one you are. Um, but this is kind of what we see here. And overall, overall, we should see it because there's a point no matter what. You jump in with the idealist and you say, what is it talking about here? It's talking about times when there is conquest. One of the sad things that happens in our world, right? Like, seen it in our own country's history. We go in and we say, we want that land and we're going to take it from you. And so we're going to slaughter whoever it takes to make that happen and so there's an acknowledgement here of conquest now i will point out here that with all of these horses it does beg the question like is god calling for this or is he allowing for it and the text doesn't answer that i don't think uh, but we will see 
that at the end of our passage, the end of chapter 6, it is divine punishment coming upon people and not the horses, but another section. But either way, it, it is showing us that God knows and God is still in control. The red horse is far less debated, stands for bloodshed. And there seems to be an internal slant to this. And so if you have conquest coming from the outside, you also have, we know this, fighting that happens within countries. We've seen a lot of that in our nation. Thankfully, not nearly as much death as other nations see and experience. For example, the Romans, uh, not long before this was written, under the reign of Herod the Great, they had 100,000 people died in revol uh, revolutions uh, just during his reign in the Palestinian area alone. 100,000 people for riots and, you know, uprisings and all of these types of things. And so there is a, we know there is a reality of bad things, even murderous things happening when people should be on the same side of things. Nobody even hardly talks about the black horse. It's strange to me. Read the commentaries, and everybody's like, we all kind of agree on this. It's so weird. Like, after you spend a bunch of time reading about the white horse, it's like the black horse is famine. And nobody that I read went into any level of detail. It stands for famine. Uh, I would say more broadly, it stands for scarcity, the lack of resources. And we know that there are always, and always will be, it seems, on this earth, a lack of resources for the people who live on this planet. The pale horse represents death. In fact, it's identified as death, and it says Hades is right behind it, which was uh, the place of the dead in Hebrew thought. I think it would be akin for us to say the grave was right behind it. I think that'd be an easy way for us to kind of understand that language. And, and so here's this pale horse just overall representing death, which are obviously implied in the uh, other uh, horses and, and what they stand for as well. And so uh, here it is. We see these four horses riding out and the point seems to be, as we see God on his throne and only Jesus able to open these seals, one of which is each of the horses, the four seals correspond with the four horses, it seems to be saying that there is a God that is still in control despite everything that's happening. Nothing is happening without him knowing. Nothing is happening without him allowing. And some would even say that these things are not happening without him doing in this passage, but overall we are meant to see, and I'll explain why in a second. You're just like, it doesn't sound like that to me, but what we're going to see in a second is important in the next section, but it's meant to convey to us that whether rebellion or anarchy or war or murder or fire or flood or famine or even disease like COVID, God is in control and he is working these things towards his purposes. It's really important. And this is true no matter how you understand the book of Revelation, no matter how you come at the book, there seems to be this underlying idea in this passage that God is in control no matter how many bad things, no matter whether you know we have people dying of cold and earthquake and violence and all the other things I said at the beginning of my sermon. Now, I want to say, as I say all that, I've given you some ideas, some options, I, I don't want to ever give the impression as we move through the book of Revelation that I don't think it's important to try to figure out what you think about these different things. In fact, um, it's one of my goals. Uh, I mentioned a take-home test last week that I horribly exaggerated how many pages it was, but it, longest test I ever took. It took me so long to go through and do this take-home test, and it functions as a, 
a small commentary, if you will, on the book of Revelation and some of the complicated questions. We're going we're gonna to make that digital, and we're going to get it onto our website, and that will allow you to kind of read further. Here's what this group says about this, and this group says about that. And I hope that will be a good resource for you, because I don't want you to think that, that thinking about this and talking about this is unimportant. Like, come to a conclusion about where you think these horses and riders, these horsemen fit in history, but never and this is why I'm preaching this series. Never lose the sight of the overall point and the application to our lives. And here it seems to be that God is in control. Now there's danger, as I'll balance that, with there's danger in looking at these four horsemen and trying to make very specific guesses about what they might be and who they might represent. Like, for example, like I think, this is not a good way to go. I think this is, this is no good. Um, like I saw some website and said it was doing the math on how many people had died of COVID and based on this passage of scripture and a quarter of the people not dying. He said, therefore, to state a sobering fact bluntly, unless COVID-19 pandemic intensifies substantially, it is not deadly enough to indicate that the four horsemen have begun riding. This is, I'm sorry, I don't want to do it. I just think it's a ridiculous way. And, and most, probably you, and maybe you'll be mad at me, but this is like how the lens through which most modern Americans look at the book of Revelation, and I think they're just, people are wrong, <laughs> like all the time with these kinds of guesses, like he, he was right, I guess, if it wasn't the four horsemen, but I, but maybe the four horsemen have begun to ride, and because he took it so literally that maybe he's wrong in that regard, you know, I mean, it's this, make, like, I'll give you another one. How how Lindsay, you know, way back in the day, said that it was going on because uh, Russia and Arab allies had attacked Israel, and uh, and and so then he he wrote, writes this down, the late great Planet Earth, which became wildly popular uh, uh, book, and and so it's like, and then we see that duplication in John Hagee, uh, who who comes along, and you know, he says the CIA considers green the color of Islam, and points to the allowance of Iran to have nuclear weapons under the Obama administration. And we go down these lines, and I'm not, I just, I think that it all makes a mess of the point of the book. I don't think it's, I don't think it's evil, but I do think it could be dangerous. David Koresh, who died in Waco, Texas, uh, four days before he died, he was uh, writing uh, a document uh, to, to explain what the four horsemen referred to, and he believed that he had been uniquely equipped and inspired to reveal this information to humanity. Um, and when we come along and we start making enemies, our own enemies, the people and the things and the symbols in the book of Revelation, I do think there's actual danger in it. And so I would say, in the words of Dr. Kuykendall, who I'll quote in a second, handle with care. You know, like, I'm not saying throw out, you know, every talk of, like, could this be happening and all that. Just be careful with it. Dr. Kuykendall says it is clear that these four terrible horsemen all stand under the sovereignty of God and the Lamb who opens the seals. They all ride out at the bidding of the four living creatures who worship at God's throne. Whatever dreadful things may happen on earth, they are all within God's plan and under God's sovereign 
control. And in fact, in this passage, you didn't probably pick it up. I wouldn't have picked it up on first hearing of these words. But God is in this limiting the calamities that can fall upon the earth. He says, hey, you can take a quarter of the people. And uh, oh, by the way, like I want the wine and the oil to still be um, plentiful. I want there not to be a scarcity in that, which doesn't mean that God values giving us wine over rice. You know, like this, like don't, that is not what we're supposed to take away. Like, and if we get too detailed, we might. Like God cares about Italian food and nothing else. Like that's not it. It's there to say that even in the midst of all this calamity, even in the midst of all this calamity, God is limiting those calamities for the people who reside on earth. Now, I do think it's important. It would be easy to just read this and, you know, pick apart the details and all those things, but it's so important for us to remember that God is in control and he's working all things towards his plan when things get really bad, isn't it? I mean, did you ever feel in the last few years like, where is God? Like, what is he doing? I mean, we got people rioting. I can't breathe because it's so smoky and I'm not allowed to leave my house even though outside is the only place that, you know, I, I can be and now I can't because of smoke. Did you, I mean, like, like that was bad, right? And it's like, I know we want to say, why is God allowing this to happen? But there's a part of us that says, is God still in control? We don't ask that as much, but there's a part of us that says that. And this says, yes. God is in control no matter what calamities befall this earth and so remain faithful to him even when it's hard. Now, listen to Revelation 6, 9 through 11. This is how I know there's a, there's a huge part of this that is just meant to be encouraging because this is what we read. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, how long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. Then each of them was given a white robe and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters were killed just as they had been. Now, the first thing you need to see here is, is simply what's happening and, and that is that, that we see the fifth seal opened and behind this fifth seal, which is attached to the scroll, and we don't know what's in the scroll. I covered that last week, but the, uh, we have some guesses, but the, the scrolls or the seals are now being opened. And under the fifth one, we get this picture of Christian martyrs. And they are crying out, how long until you avenge us? You feel like a very nice question, but that is what they are asking of God. And they're given these white robes and they're told to wait a little longer. Now, as we think about remaining faithful to God, all of a sudden we are reintroduced. They come up in chapter one, but we're reintroduced to these people who are the perfect examples, the best examples that a human can be of remaining faithful even when it's hard, because they have been actually killed for proclaiming the testimony about Jesus. They have been killed because they believed and refused to deny that Jesus had come to earth to die for our sins. They had been killed in a literal sense. They had been killed for holding to the gospel that all people are sinners, that we in our own ways have rejected God, but Jesus had come and God had laid upon him the punishment that each and every one of us deserves so that if we believe in that story and we give our lives to him, if we follow him, we can be forgiven 
and spend eternity in perfect unity with God. They've been killed for believing that. And right here, he just drops it in, right? There's this example. Like you're struggling because of of the things that are going on on earth. You're struggling because Domitian's persecution is on the uprise. Like you're struggling because you're thinking about maybe what Nero has already done in in killing off your friends and your family members, people you went to church with. Like you're struggling because of that, but there are a group of people who reside in heaven that have been actually killed for what you believe. So keep going even if it gets a little bit hard. And I would say there's, there's just such Im- importance in that for us today. And I'm not going to beat around the bush and say and not say, and I said it in the first sermon, I'll say it throughout, like it is growing harder to become a Christian in the United States. We do not face persecution like people around the world at this point, but I fear that at least my children will. And here we have a shining example of the fact that it's still worth it to serve God, even if it means it costs us our lives but surely that means, even if it means it costs us a job or a friendship or, you know, a promotion or something so small, right? Like somebody might make fun of us. It, we definitely should serve God then if these people were willing to serve God to the point of death. And, and notice, I love this, like what they say. Like they don't look at God and say like, hey, God's an idiot, but they refer to God as holy and true, they've been killed. And yet, in eternity, they look at God and say, you are uniquely better and greater than all of your creation. And you are true. For John, the author of this book, the one inspired to write these things down, truth is a big deal, such a big deal that I spent, uh, I spoke at a, at a college retreat earlier this year, and I, I spent four sermons preaching on truth just in the book of John. It was an extension of, of some things I talked about last year as I preached through the book of John, and I wanted to dive deeper. And, and basically what you'll find as you move through the book of John is that, that God is truth. Truth isn't God, that's an important distinction, but God is truth, and that which is true is that which really extends from him. And and these people having been killed, they're not going, that was a bummer decision. We see them saying God is holy and true. It reminds me of what we read in the book of Hebrews for our purposes. Like in Hebrews 11, we have this list of these great people of faith, many of whom were hurt or killed because of that faith. And then in Hebrews chapter 12, one through three, it says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a, such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders us and the sin that so easily entangles us and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. He says, we have a cloud of witnesses. We have people who have gone before us, for us and have been willing to lose their lives over faith. So you keep going when it's hard. And by the way, we have the perfect and ultimate example in Jesus who did what he came to do despite being scorned and killed for it. Keep going even when it is hard. And notice where their souls are. They're on the altar. The altar is a place of sacrifice and worship. They gave their lives as a sacrifice in worship to God. And they call us to do the same even when it's hard. Romans 12, 1, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, the view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, 
holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And now the book of Revelation compels us by showing us these people who have died for the faith to do it even when it's really hard. Even when it is really hard. Now, I know one thing you'll struggle with here if you think about it at all. Is how can they, I mean, isn't that so unchristian sounding to, to, to say, God, when are you going to avenge us? Isn't that bad? Doesn't that seem bad? Well, not necessarily. I mean, we see other examples of this in the Bible. Psalm 79, 10, which by the way, we, we read some scripture before we sang. It's the next verse. And I thought without a little bit of talk ahead of time, it would really, it would really change the attitude of worship because he says all that nice stuff. And then, and then before our eyes make known among the nations that you avenge the outpoured blood of your servants. Wow. Now, we've got to balance this with another Christian teaching, and that is Jesus saying, I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. 1 Peter 3, 9, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. And so here we see in Scripture that godly people recorded, you know, by the inspiration of God are saying, hey, when are you going to avenge your people? But also, God is calling us to love and pray for and even feed and serve those who persecute us, those who are against us. And I think that it's important to consider these things and, and ask the question, like, how do we reconcile this? I mean, what's the, what's the disconnect? What's going on here? And here's how I'd say it. I wrote this down. I want to read it just as I wrote it, not because it's a wonderful statement, but because it's a complicated issue, and I hope this uh, settles it a little we should strive to be a blessing to those who persecute us while also recognizing and taking hope in the justice that Jesus will ultimately bring against societies and people opposing God and persecuting Christians. So in the short, here and now, if somebody says, I hate you because you're a Christian, you love that person, you pray for that person, and you serve that person. But also you remember that that which stands against God and his people will ultimately be punished and God will bring justice. There's hope in both of those things, right? I mean, there's hope in the fact that we can still pray and have the love of Jesus. And there's also hope in knowing uh, that there's hope in knowing that those who hurt us, and I would say those who kill our brothers and sisters around the world, are going to be held accountable before God. And I said, you could, you could see the both ways on the four horsemen. Is God allowing that? Is God doing that? Like, what's the interplay there? But it's so clear in, in Roman, I mean, Revelation 6, 12 through 17, that there is punishment coming to people who oppose God and persecute his people. Listen to Romans 6, 12 through 17. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red. And the stars in the sky fell to earth as figs dropped from a fig tree which shaken by a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. The kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves and among the rocks and the mountains. They called to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? It is abundantly clear 
that at a point or some points in history that God is going to bring upon people disaster, it appears here natural disaster, in order to bring justice against those who have hurt and harmed his people and stood in opposition to him. I mean, they're like, like, who can save us from the one who sits on the throne? They recognize where it's coming from. And also, notice this incredible phrase. It's, it's dramatic. The wrath of the Lamb. I mean, we've already talked about Jesus as the Lamb of God, the suffering servant, the one who was led like a sheep before its slaughters. Like, that's Jesus. He came and he suffered and he died for us. And he... he He's so loving and giving and caring and he's changed my life and he's changed so many of your lives, right? And he's the one that I need to go to in the morning. If I have half a chance to be a decent person, I need to follow his example and learn from him and be in his presence. And, and he is not going to forever let it slide that people are opposing him and persecuting his people. There will be a moment when his wrath is poured out on those who have stood against him and his people. Now, I say that. If you're a preterist, you see this as this happened, right? Like there's something that happened in history. If you're a historicist, you see that too because you're moving through the book. Futurists will say, well, this is an ultimate kind of thing. I think it's really important just to take the point and say God is going to punish those who oppose him and persecute his people. But I hate, and I think it is so dangerous, and at times it is borderline evil for us to look at the disasters that occur and start pointing the finger and say God got them. I mean, people did it with covid I've heard it done with the wildfires that are taking place in California. I remember it very vividly by some TV personalities when uh, the Twin Towers were bombed. Look, our nation isn't as Christian-like as it used to be, and so God did this to you. We should not do that. <laughs> we should not do that. But at the same time, we should all recognize that God will bring punishment. And I think that every natural disaster and every type of disaster should be a reminder that ultimately God will put an end to those who punish or persecute his people and oppose him. And for those of you that aren't Christians, like, I'm not going to point, I mean, Christians died on September 11th, Christians died of COVID, Christians have had their houses burned down by wildfires. Jesus says about a man who's blind, it's not his sin or his parents' sin that caused this, it's just a part of the world, right? And so there are natural disasters that are not just punishment for people, but every disaster that the world has should be a reminder to us that God will bring disaster upon those who persecute his people and stand opposed to him. And for those of you that aren't Christians, it should be a call to turn to the lamb. Like you can either experience his grace and it will change your life and give you an eternity in heaven, or you can experience his wrath one day. 
Like these are the two choices. You either will experience the wrath of the lamb or the grace of the lamb. And I hope for every one of you who sit before me, those who watch online that have not chosen to accept the gift of salvation that Jesus has offered, that you would make a decision to do that. And every moment from here on out, when you read about an earthquake or you read of somebody dying because it's cold or you read about another school shooting, it would be a reminder to you that you need Jesus. You need Jesus. I mean, Jesus, listen, I think Luke 13, 1 through 5 is so important. Now, there was at the present time, uh, uh, there was someone, uh, some present at the time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their own sacrifices. Really bad, especially for a Jewish person to be killed and then had your blood go into like these sacrifices, like the foreign false gods, like that's terrible. And, And Jesus answered them. He said, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you too will perish. I mean, I'm, I'm not up here saying, like, if you're super bad, <laughs> that, hey, the rocks might, you might want the rocks to fall on you. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that if you're not, if you haven't accepted Jesus, then ultimately you're going to feel the wrath of the Lamb. There's a choice to be made here. Now, for those of us living in modern-day America, this is just a problem to overcome. Like, well, I don't want to talk about that. How dare him preach this sermon? Like, we don't want to think about these parts of the Bible. We love talking about the Lamb, but the wrath of the Lamb, that's a different issue altogether. And so for those of us in America, like, there may be not as much encouragement, but we have people that listen to my sermons all over the world by God's grace. And so I want to talk to a second to people who are listening to this. We've had people in Saudi Arabia listen to our sermons. I want to look at you and say, if you choose to give your life to Jesus and people beat you and take your children and even are going to kill you because of it, know that Jesus will not stand for it forever. And someday he will vindicate you. And you probably feel more than I could ever imagine right now the question of those martyrs. Like how much longer? And I'm telling you it is coming some day keep serving jesus even when it's really hard and there are there at least tens of thousands of people listen to me there are tens of thousands of people at least some say a hundred thousand people who die for their faith in jesus every year it's at least tens of thousands And those people willing to do that, like these martyrs that we just read about in the Bible, like they're a testimony to us, right? Because I can manage talking about Jesus in front of people who might not like him when I know they might get a little weirded out if they can handle standing firm in their faith despite the fact that they are going to die for it. We need to be on the side of Jesus. And let me sum it all up for you. Let me try to bring it all together. The point of the book of Revelation is to keep serving, loving, worshiping, remaining faithful to God, to Jesus, even when it's really hard. And it's encouraging in this passage by reminding us that no matter what happens, our God is in control. By showing us the martyrs who stand as an example to us, still proclaiming the awesomeness of God, even though they've suffered and died for it. This just popped into my head now, I'm going to say it. Like those martyrs in heaven knowing that their children won't be parents and still worshiping God. Think about that. And we know that Jesus will bring justice against those who oppose him and hurt his church. And so what should we do? If you're not a Christian, 
at least think about becoming one. Like you need to, you need to experience the grace of the Lamb so that you don't have to deal with the eternal wrath of the Lamb. But if you're a Christian, remember that God is in control. If you're ever maligned or mocked for your faith, pray for those who are doing it to you. Serve those people. Give them a cold cup of water, as it says in Scripture. But also trust that God will bring you justice in the end. And you probably have people in your life that like you a little bit less because you're a Christian. Pray for them. Love them. Serve them. Don't just say, I want you to go to hell. That's not the point here. And we pray that they'll give their lives to Jesus and they'll become a part of the grace of the Lamb. They'll get the grace of the Lamb. But when people are mean to you for your faith, remember that God will not take it forever. And I want to end with one more challenge. I want you to read something about Christian martyrs today or even in history. DC Talk has that great book that uh, name is escaping me right now and Fox's Book of Martyrs Before Them Jesus Freak, that's what it's called, uh, Jesus Freaks. And I grab one of those or Google it and read about Christians who have died for their faith in history or people now who are being hurt and tortured and face the threat of death because of their faith in Jesus and let it be an encouragement to you to keep serving Jesus even when it's hard. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, this is a hard passage of Scripture and you know, not one we're going to hang on our wall, probably, um, you know, the, that chapter. But I think it's so important, Lord. And honestly, God, I do feel like um, like a lot of Americans are uh, asking the question, is it worth it to keep serving you? Because it's becoming harder. And obviously I pray that they would believe so strongly in your grace and mercy that they would say yes to that. But also, Lord, uh, like you're in control. You're on your throne. You're the only one who can open the seals, God. And uh, you're, you're the God who holds history in your hand and you are moving, God, everything towards an ultimate and final ending where we will either experience your wrath or your grace. And so, Lord, I pray we keep serving you when it's hard. I also pray for those who don't know you and love you, Lord. And like, uh, I just want them to know you. And I want them, God, to know how an encounter with you, Jesus, the Lamb, can change their lives. And how it can bring them hope, even when it seems like the whole world is falling apart. How they can look at the threat of disease and war and famine and scarcity, Lord, which so many are facing, they can see it differently. And you know, Lord, as I drove across the United States this, this summer, Lord, at least two-thirds of it, uh, I saw so many hurting and broken people. And every time, not every time, but so many times I thought, Lord, I wish I could do something for them. And there's nothing that really I can ultimately do except serve them and pray for them and hope, God, that they encounter you so that they can say, this is not it. I have something so much better to look forward to. Lord, bring people, bring people through my sermon, through our church, bring people to salvation, bring them to you. 
and help those of us who are Christians, God, to keep living for you even when it's hard because we know that you are in control, because we have great examples, and because we know, God, it is better to experience your grace than your wrath. I pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.